0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What I think makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I watch. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today I'm talking about the 1985 film Desert Hearts. It's directed by Donna Deach. It's part of a series I've been doing about debut feature films by women directors. This film is amazing. I really love it. It's set in Reno, Nevada in 1959. It's about a woman named Vivian Bell who's coming off of a 12-year marriage. She has to live in Reno for six weeks so that she can get a divorce. So she's staying at this ranch while she's staying there. She meets a woman named Kay rivers and the two of them fall in love and have a very deep connection with each other. What makes this film quite radical and revolutionary is that it was one of the first films to depict a lesbian relationship that didn't end in suicide or tragedy. Um, This film is not about suffering or torment, it's about love and romance, and it's a very beautiful film. I'm going to talk all about the film, there will be spoilers, I'll talk about the making of the film, but I'll I'll also share a lot of my personal emotions as I watch certain scenes. So I hope that you'll stick with me, and that you'll listen to the full episode. Her head and Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and you can also access rewards and extras. Um, I have all kinds of extras. Um, you can vote in polls, you can access mini podcasts, shorter podcasts that I do just for paid patrons at a certain level. Recently, I did a part two on Call Me By Your Name. I did a full length episode about the film, but for my patrons, I did a mini episode where I talked about more of my emotions about that film because they're so intense. You can access that by becoming a patron and you can find more information at patreon.com slash her films at one level. You get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Spunden, Paulina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thanks so much for being patrons. You really do make the podcast possible. If financial support is not an option, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, especially iTunes. It helps it get better placement in the directory. If you do leave a review on iTunes, I may read it on the podcast. So please, if you have a few minutes, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can send an encouraging message to me. I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films. And you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. Before I talk about the film in depth, I do want to talk a bit about how the film came to be made. The source material for the film, which is a novel. So I want to talk a bit about those things before I go really deeply into the film. So Desert Hearts is actually based on a book the book was written or it was released in 1964 it was written by a woman named Jane Rule who i had never heard of until i got interested in this film and found out that the film is based on a book called Desert of the Heart and so jane rule wrote this book in the 1960s it was actually her first novel and jane rule um is known as a writer who wrote novels about lesbians. Her books are lesbian themed and it was important to her to write about the lives of women in this way and to give them complexity and to provide a different narrative about queer women, obviously, because up to then, when she's writing in the 1960s, and even into the 1980s, when Desert Hearts comes out and is filmed, the narratives about lesbian women tended to be tragic. These women tended to either kill themselves, commit suicide, or to get married. So women who were gay didn't have a lot of representation of themselves in mainstream media, in Hollywood, in cinema, that was positive or affirming or complex. It always ended in some kind of tragedy, and their lives were always defined by that, by the tragic. Um, so Desert of the Heart was Jane Rule's first novel, and um, I watched the Desert Hearts on Filmstruck. I'm not given anything to mention Filmstruck in this podcast. It is a service that I use myself and that I enjoy. It's part of the Criterion channel on Filmstruck and there's lots of extras that go with it on the website. So I was able to watch Desert Hearts. I was able to watch excerpts from a documentary about Jane Rule There are featurettes um, that include interviews with Donna Deitch and the actresses that were in the film, Helen Shaver and Patricia Charbonneau. And so uh, if you use Filmstruck and you want to see the film, that's where you can see it. And you get lots of extras that you can see that. And it even features... Commentary, audio commentary by Donna Deach. Now, this was, was, this was the first time I was watching Desert Hearts. Usually, lately, when I'm doing episodes for the podcast, I'm actually re watching films that I've already seen. But I am doing a series about debut feature films by women directors. And this one immediately came to mind as a film that I'd always wanted to watch, that I'd always wanted to explore. And so that's why I chose it. And so this was the first time I was watching it. So I did not watch it with the audio commentary because I prefer when I watch a film for the first time to just watch it as it is. Now, when I'm watching a film a second or third or fourth time, I may listen to audio commentary, but I just wanted you to let wanted to let you know, I'm sorry (laughs) that I'm not speaking perfectly. It's the it's sort of near the end of the week that I'm recording this episode I try to get the episode recorded earlier in the week when I tend to be sharper and better, but things have just conspired against me this week. So if this episode is maybe not as perfect as I would like it to be, I do apologize. I want to do this film justice, but I am a human being and I'm flawed and I'm tired and I'm just, I have a lot going on. So I'm like misspeaking over and over again, and I apologize for that. So um, the audio commentary by Donna Deach is available on Filmstruck. And so that might be something that you might want to explore if you've seen the film, if you haven't seen the film. You know, I never know when people are listening, which they've done yet. I mean, sometimes you're listening to an episode and you haven't seen the film that I'm talking about and so this might be an introduction to you of Desert Hearts. You may have never seen it or even heard of it. On the other hand, you could be like a hardcore, rapid fan of this film. And that's why you're listening to the episode. So I'm trying to provide you as much information as I can. So check it out on Filmstruck. It's really wonderful. They also obviously have a DVD or Blu-ray that you can purchase if you'd like to have a physical copy. I'm much more dependent on streaming nowadays. I don't really buy DVDs and all that because I really don't have the money to and I don't have the room to store them. So Filmstruck is really wonderful for that. And I'm really grateful for all these extras that they provided on their website. So there is this little... um, these two excerpts from, I'm thinking it's a longer documentary about Jane Rule, and she is a fascinating woman. Um, I'm really interested in reading Desert of the Heart, obviously. Um, I do hope to read the book. I didn't have time to read the book and to watch the film and do this episode because I do these episodes in a matter of a week, so I just didn't have time, but in the future, I would probably like to read the book itself, because I really did enjoy the film. Jane was only about 30 when she wrote this book, and she was trying to push back against those very negative narratives about lesbians. When the book was published in 1964 in Canada and in the United States, it was a really controversial book because of the subject matter, obviously, that it is about two lesbian women, and... um. You know when you're talking about 1964 you're talking about a time at which homosexuality is really criminalized that um it's really underground in the 1960s and um when people look at homosexuals whether it be gay men or gay women they are seen as diseased they are seen as having like a mental illness or they are seen as criminals They're seen as abnormal and wrong. Obviously, we are still encountering these views. They haven't magically gone away. I think a lot of people think because it's 2018 that we don't live in a homophobic world anymore. And yes, is it better than it was in the 1960s or even the 1990s or 80s? Yes, things have gotten better in some regards. But as I've said in other episodes, because this podcast I want to use it as a platform to talk about all kinds of stories. And I try to spotlight queer stories as much as I can. I've talked about Blue as the Warmest Color. I've talked about Moonlight, Barry Jenkins's film. I've talked about Call Me by Your Name. And now I'm talking about Desert Hearts. So these are important stories to me. They are necessary stories and they need to be told. And I want to keep focusing on films like this, so this is really important to me. But I've said it in other episodes, just because we have gay marriage does not mean homophobia all of a sudden doesn't exist. That is not the only barometer by which we should measure the progress of the queer community. There is still great deals of homelessness, of um, discrimination, of... Um, poverty, and, and things that go along with being queer, especially for people of color, especially people living in more rural areas or in the South. There is violence. There is discrimination. There is hatred and bigotry. There are people that feel like they can't come out to their parents or to their family. There's a really great documentary called Kiki, and it's on Hulu. That's where I watched it recently. And it's about the ball culture in New York City. In like, I think it was made in 2016. It's a documentary and it focuses on queer youth of color. And, it, and, and there are transgender people that they talk about as well. So, you know, we know that trans women and trans women of color are murdered at very high rates. So we're talking about life and death issues still that to be gay... Or to be queer or to be transgender is still very dangerous and difficult and comes with all kinds of issues. And Kiki puts a spotlight on that. It shows um, the homelessness, the discrimination, and and everything that a lot of queer youth go through right now. So we've not gotten there yet. I think a lot of people think we have because we have gay marriage. Well, obviously that's more for You know, like affluent, usually white gay people, you know, that is what they are more interested in. And we need to be talking about discrimination in in trying to get a job or housing or just different things that queer queer, um, people, often queer people of color are going through. So, um, I just wanted to mention that, um, so yes, were the 1960s difficult? Yes, the homosexuality was criminalized and all kinds of things. Um, so it was actually pretty amazing, I think, that Jane Rule wrote this book at that time and it was her debut, um, novel. Um, she was very wary about selling the rights to this book to Hollywood Because she knew Hollywood's track record with queer characters. That they either ended up committing suicide or getting married or something like that. So she was very wary at first. But Donna Deitch, who was really impacted by this book, she reached out to Jane. She went and visited her at her home. Um, Up to this point, Donna Deitch had only made documentaries or short documentaries Um, she this was her debut feature film uh, debut fiction feature film Um, so she showed Jane some of the movies she had made up to then and Jane agreed that Donna could use the book as a source material to make her own film Um, she was okay with that and so actually the characters names are changed So if you do read the book, and I sort of read like a page, I sort of started it, and um, the names are different. In the film, it's Vivian Bell and Kay Rivers, and in the book, they have very different names. They've changed some of the subplots and the different characters, and so they have used the book as sort of source material, but they've made the story their own and really focused in on the things that they wanted to focus on um Natalie Cooper was the screenwriter so what makes this film really extraordinary I think is that it's a film about women by women that women are so much a part of this film whether it's a screenwriter with Natalie Cooper or director with Donna Deitch and Donna um she raised all the money for this film so she was producer she was director um it took her years it took her like 6 years to get the money. And even when she was making the film. She did not have a distribution deal. In line for it. That came later. So this was a labor of love for her. She she did so much. To get this film made. And um. So. And I did want to talk a moment. About uh, Donna Deitch. And um this was her debut feature film. And um it's, it's an amazing, uh, wonderful debut feature film, I think. And, um, she worked really hard to get it made. Um, it premiered at Telluride and Sundance. I think it won an award at Sundance. And, um, since then she has directed, uh, some other things. She's mainly been in television. Um, Oprah Winfrey. We all know Oprah, right? Um, she saw Desert Hearts and was really impressed by it, and she actually tapped Donna Deitch to direct the mini the mini I can't talk. The mini series, the Women of Brewster Place, and so Donna Deitch directed that. She's also done television episodes for ER, NYPD Blue. Um, she's done some TV movies. Um, Crossing Jordan, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Judging Amy. So she has a really, um, she's had a really long career directing episodes of television series. From what I've read, she's been writing or working on a, a sequel to Desert Hearts for many, many years. I'm not sure if it'll happen, when it'll happen, um, but she has been wanting to do a sequel to it and um desert hearts won the special jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 1986 and it was nominated for the grand jury prize there at that same festival so this film I would say it's more of a cult classic it wasn't exactly a blockbuster or anything but it is considered one of the first feature films to depict a lesbian romance in a positive non-tragic way and that is really probably one of its most important things about it is that it shows a positive portrayal of women falling in love with each other Um, and that's actually really important I mean if that's your only contribution I think that's a pretty amazing contribution personally um, so that's what makes the film really so important is that, um, and from what I read, it was also one of the first sort of films to get sort of distribution that showed a, a graphic lesbian love scene. Cause there is nudity in the film. I wouldn't say it's pornographic or anything like that. Um, but there is a love scene in the film and there is nudity. And so that was a big deal too that um, people probably were seeing this for the first time. A lot of people who went to movie theaters and things like that in the 1980s. Um, But it really was one of the first films, if not the first film, to show a lesbian couple that did not end in suicide or one of them entering into a heterosexual marriage. Um, Really, this is about a woman leaving a marriage and entering into this new relationship. And I'll talk about that when I go deeper into the film. So I did want to give you just a little bit of context. I mean, I could go on forever. Um, There's so many stories about the making of the film. And um, I did watch a documentary on Filmstruck. It's called Women in Love. And it was made in, in 2017. And there are different interviews with the actresses and I may try to weave that in as I'm talking about it but there's also a little documentary on Filmstruck where Donna Deitch is talking to her art director I think and her cinematographer and they really talk about how the film was an extremely positive experience for everybody involved and how much it felt like a family, and how much the set was really filled with love and support. It was really interesting to learn about the different sets, and um, they actually found an empty casino, or an empty hotel or something that had had a casino in it, and um, they were able to rent it out to direct the film in it, and there's just so many beautiful sets and locations for this film. and Because um, it's set in Reno, Nevada in 1959. And, um, but they just talk about how the experience of the film was so magical. And Helen Shaver and Patricia Charbonneau, the main actresses, um, who play Kay and Vivian, they talk about how they knew... They knew as they were making the film that it was something special. And this film has deeply impacted people. It, it, It's a cult classic in a lot of ways. There are people that are very passionate about this film. And for a lot of women, it was the first time they were seeing a lesbian relationship represented in a really positive and loving way. And that can be so transformative you know, when people say representation matters, it really does. That is why we talk so much about inclusivity and diversity is because when you see yourself reflected in the media that you consume, and if you see yourself reflected in a positive way, that can impact your life. And it can impact the way that other people treat you. When we have deeply racist representations of people in our media, It affects all of us. It affects the way we're treated by other people. It affects the way we see ourselves. And Jane Rule, after she wrote uh, Desert of the Heart, she got letters from women all around the country, all around Canada, United States, all kinds of places. Women telling her what that book meant to them. To see a romance between two, two women depicted in such a beautiful and positive way that um i would imagine that for a lot of lesbian women watching the film or reading the book may have even been the first time when they realized who they were and what they felt that this this was who they are and maybe they had not wanted to accept it or had had trouble um accepting that about themselves or feared that there was something wrong with them, or something abnormal about them, or something that they should be ashamed about. And instead, this book, or possible, and also the film, made such an impact, a positive impact on so many women's lives, where they felt like they were reflected in a really complex, beautiful way, and just humanized. There's so many depictions of queer people, of people of color, of women, that are so dehumanizing and degrading. And so when we get really positive representations, that matters. That's why Black Panther has been such a big deal Um, to especially the Black community here in the United States. It's very important to see yourself reflected, to see people who look like you on screen and who are humanized who are strong and powerful and beautiful and and all of those things. It's really transformative and, and so important. And so this film was that for a lot of women. And I would imagine that maybe straight people who went to go see it, um, maybe it changed their views about lesbians or about queer people, that maybe it opened them up a bit, um, possibly you know, but I do know that for queer people, especially queer women, this was a really revelatory film. And, um, so that is a big accomplishment. And I'm really glad that the, the, the Criterion Collection has put a spotlight on the film again. I mean, it came out in 1986 I think personally the original poster looks terrible. Um, I don't like the aesthetics of it. So I really love that the Criterion Collection has done all this work to bring the film back into the public consciousness and to sort of revamp it. They have a beautiful poster for it that is so dreamy and has these beautiful blues and greens and and they have provided these interviews and these extras and, and all of that. And I love that they've done that. And the Criterion Collection is great at stuff like that. They can take these little films that people have forgotten about or that or that hasn't gotten more mainstream attention and they can put it back out there and get people interested in it and give it a better look and and just more beautiful. And um I'm someone like I really like film posters. Like I I just and I really love Criterion Collection's film posters. They do A really great job with the look of a film and they do the dvds and they do the images for it it's always just stellar and really beautiful and i love that they they gave an update an updated look to this film and gave it really the treatment that i think it deserves and so we're i'm very i'm very thankful to the criterion collection for getting this film out there again getting people talking about it giving it the prestige that I definitely think that it deserves. So now I'm going to talk more deeply about the film, about my feelings about it, about why I think it's so special. Obviously, if I did not like it, or if I didn't think it was good, I wouldn't talk about it on the podcast. I try to only talk about films that I really feel a personal connection to, or I feel impacted by in some way. And I definitely felt that with this film. I have to say I really loved this film. Sometimes you'll see a trailer for a film or you'll read the description or something like that and you'll get this these high expectations for the film and you'll watch it and it doesn't really live up to it. This film absolutely lived up to my expectations and I think really exceeded it. I would like to give a shout out to the person that actually got me interested in the film and that's Carolyn Pettit and she is a really wonderful person. She's part of the Feminist Frequency team, and she's one of the hosts on their podcast, Feminist Frequency Radio. And she actually gave me a very kind shout out in one of the episodes, which I really appreciate. And um, she has just been an amazing support to me as I have done this podcast. And um. I really thank her for that. So if she's listening, um, I have to mention her because she writes so beautifully about cinema. And I followed her for a while now. And I follow her on Twitter and and, um, on Tumblr and and places like that. And she wrote about Desert Hearts. And um, I may have heard of the film before that, but I read her piece about it. And it's one of those things where I just kind of filed it in the back of my mind. I was like, that film looks really good. Carolyn likes it. So I'm interested in it. And it wasn't until now that I actually got the chance to watch it. But she is the reason that I ended up watching it and that I got to thinking about it and had an interest in it. So I want to thank her for that. And I'm going to talk a bit about what she wrote about the film later on in the review. She wrote about some particular scenes. And when I get to those scenes in my own review, I'm going to share her writing. Because she's a wonderful, uh, eloquent, beautiful writer about cinema. And um, so I just want to thank her for introducing me to the film. It's so interesting the way things are now with social media that... It's really just people online that can get you interested in a film. You, you just see one of their posts, or you or you see something they wrote about it, and and it just leads you to a film. And that's always been the really magical thing to me about social media and about the internet is the really unseen impact that we can have on each other without even knowing it. You don't necessarily know that somebody saw your post and then went to read that book or to watch that film or got really inspired by that painter or that photographer. So social media when it comes to art and media has always been really interesting to me because that's really the primary way that I have discovered certain films and certain books is just through people's recommendations or other people's taste that I happen to respect and think is really great. And so um, I'm glad to think that maybe I'm a little bit part of a part of that, that maybe you hear about a film through my podcast, or if you follow me on social media I like to think that I have some kind of little impact on people. That's the whole reason I stay on social media. Because it can get really toxic and negative. And you can meet people who seem nice and seem good. And then they actually show their true colors. And it can get kind of ugly and hurtful. Um, And... That's a really dark, unfortunate part of the internet and social media. But then there's this other part where you can meet really amazing, great people the way I have, and um, you can get introduced to new books and films and art, and your world can really be opened up and expanded, um, and there's it adds sort of a fullness to your life, I think, and it's just about the way that you use it. And so if you use it, I think, to focus on cinema and literature and art and the things that you're passionate about and to share what you love and what you care about, then I think it can be a really positive thing in your life. And that's what I try to focus on. I've had negative experiences. I've had negative interactions with people. But I don't want to let those things define me. And I don't want to let them from let them keep me from the good part and the positive part and the magical part where your life is really enriched by some of your connections and by some of the the things that you see and the people that you follow and so there are really great things about social media too and there are good people out there and that's important to remember i think so desert hearts it came out in 1985 As I said before, directed by Donna Deitch, who I just gave you a little bit of information about, written by Natalie Cooper. It is set in Reno, Nevada in 1959. Our main characters are Vivian Bell, she's played by Helen Shaver, and Kay Rivers, who's played by Patricia Charbonneau. And I'll talk a bit about what they have to say about the film um, in a moment, they actually had a very positive experience of making the film. Interestingly enough, Patricia learned that she was pregnant just before filming began, but um, but she said that Donna Deitch was really kind about it, and it really didn't change anything. But I'm sure that's like a positive memory for her that that the film is is probably sort of intertwined with that emotion of being pregnant and having a child and all of that. And um, Patricia and Helen had an immediate chemistry. And they talk about that on the interview that I mentioned on Filmstruck. They had just an immediate chemistry. And there were actually several actresses that didn't want anything to do with the film. This was the 1980s. Aligning yourself with a film about queer characters could really... Be damaging to your career, and there were actually people that I think told Helen Shaver and maybe told Patricia too if you do this film, this could be the death of your career. So these women were being told you really shouldn't do this film, this could hurt your career, this could be a negative thing. But they both read the script. And they felt an immediate connection to it. And they thought it was a beautiful script and that the film was important. And I get the sense from both of them that they are proud of the work they did in the film. And I think Patricia says something like that. That it was important to her for this story to be told. And for her to be part of um, creating this story and sharing this narrative that is very positive about a lesbian love story and so I get the sense that both of them are incredibly proud of their um their role in it that it's not anything that they're ashamed of or or anything like that and so I think that's really amazing but I think it just speaks to the homophobia that was really strong in the 1980s of even an actor being um associated with this film could spell the end of their career and it was a very big fear that I'm sure a lot of actors had in Hollywood that if they seemed gay or they came out gay that they would no longer be able to work and they both um, describe the the set as I said before as a place of love and support and that they knew they were part of something special so I think Helen Shaver and Patricia Charbonneau Do an extraordinary job in this film, and they really bring these characters to life. And um, yeah, so the film, I knew I was gonna love this film as soon as it started because this film, everything about this film is beautiful from the set locations to the actresses to the fashion. I love the fashion in this film, but the music is just stunning. And um, it starts with Patsy Cline. Um, she sings "Leavin' on Your Mind. And I knew I was going to love this film because I am a country girl. And I love country music. And I love Patsy Cline. Um, I adore her. I grew up listening to her music. I grew up with the Jessica Lange biopic Sweet Dreams." where she plays Patsy Cline. I adore that film. My mom and I, we watched it so much when I was younger, you know, when it came on television. And, um, that's just one of those films that we've always loved. And, um, yeah, I love, I just adore Patsy Cline. So I knew that I was going to love this film as soon as it started playing the Patsy Cline. And the film is filled with really great country western music. I mean, when you think of country music, you tend to think more of the south, right? You know, uh, Tennessee, Alabama, uh, Mississippi. You know, you tend to think of that region for country music. But there's the western part of it, country western. And so in Reno, Nevada, where the film is set in 1959 it, it brings out that Western look and that Western music. Um, so we have Patsy Cline and Kitty Wells and even some Elvis Presley songs. So the soundtrack is just beautiful. And it perfectly captures, I think, that moment in time, that setting of Reno, Nevada in 1959. So I immediately felt a kinship with this film, um, because I love country music. And, um, So we are introduced to our main character, really, Vivian Bell. And this is who Helen Shaver plays. And um, she's blonde. She's petite. She is pretty, very beautiful, very well-dressed. We see her coming off a train in Reno. And um, we can immediately tell that she's sort of prim and proper and um, sort of reserved to. And Helen Shaver in her interview talks about how she constructed Vivian as a character. And, um, and it's so fascinating. I actually love to watch interviews with actors because I'm just fascinated by their process and the things that they do. But, um, helen shaver actually worked with the makeup person and the costume person and they really created an arc for this character for the way that she wanted the character to develop and she wanted her hair and her clothes and the way she walked to reflect who this character was and she said that she imagined vivian uh, who is a professor at columbia university she's 35 years old She's an English professor at Columbia University. She's come to Reno, Nevada in 1959 to get a divorce. She's been married for 12 years. And what people would do in the 1950s, I guess, or even before then, Nevada was a place where you could get a quickie divorce. You had to go and be a resident there for six weeks, though. You had to live there for six weeks, and then you could get a quick divorce. And so that's what Vivian is doing. She's going there. She's going to live on this ranch with other women who are there for the same exact purposes as her. So they're living there for six weeks so that they can get that divorce. And so the movie takes place over the course of these six weeks. And um, so Vivian, because she's a professor, she is just this highly intellectual person. And it reminded me of my previous episode about Losing Ground by Kathleen Collins. Just just like Desert Hearts, that's a film about a philosophy professor. And she's this very intellectual woman. She's very within her head. And Vivian is really similar to the character Sarah Rogers in Losing Ground. Um, She's very intellectual and... Helen Shaver imagined her in that way. She saw her as someone who was cut off from the neck down, she says. So she gave her this very stiff, erect posture. And she's very sort of wooden in a way, the way she walks, the way she moves her body. And that was something that I immediately noticed. So how extraordinary on the part of Helen Shaver to think about Vivian in that way. And it just shows you what goes into creating a character for a film is to even think about little things like that. And she said that um, over the course of the film, she thought about how Vivian would change and transform and her hair changes and the way she dresses eventually changes. And I'll talk about that as I talk uh, talk more so um, I just wanted to talk about that for a moment because I just thought it was really fascinating. So Vivian is just this very reserved character. But I think she's reserved. I, I think she's trying to protect herself. I think she's in a really raw and vulnerable time of her life. She's coming out of a 12-year marriage that has failed Um She's 35 years old in the 1950s. I think we forget that back then, it was very different for women. Although Vivian is quite extraordinary in that she is a professor. She is this very professional career woman. When we think of the 1950s, we tend to think of women more as stay-at-home wives, you know, as housewives. And here she is at a college, at a university. So she is this extraordinary woman in many ways But she's also, and I think she even vocalizes it at one time, she's scared of being alone for the rest of her life. She's a woman in her 30s. She's going to be a divorced woman in her 30s. And back then, that was probably like the seal of death for a woman's life. Oh, you're divorced. Oh, you're 35 and unmarried. You know, this whole idea that you're going to become this spinster and, and this old maid, right? Um, And it's something that I think still looms over women, uh, that they are unlovable as they get older, you know. And um, she's from New York City, obviously, because the Columbia University connection. And um, so it's so interesting the way we meet these two characters because it illustrates how different they are. So when we meet Vivian, she's coming off the train. She's very prim and proper. And then we meet Kay Rivers, And so at the train station, a woman named Frances is there to pick up Vivian. Frances runs the ranch that Vivian's going to be staying at during the course of the six weeks. And Kay is sort of Frances's sort of like a daughter. Frances had been involved with Kay's father for a while and until he died And so even though Kay is not her daughter and they have no sort of blood connection, I think she does feel, um, like a mother possibly to Kay in some way. Although they have a really complicated, tumultuous relationship. So Francis is driving Vivian back to the ranch. And all of a sudden, here comes this car. It just appears in this cloud of smoke and noise. Um she's loud, she's um, feisty, she's sort of dangerous because all of a sudden she's driving backwards on this road and um, she's in reverse while they're going um, in the regular way. And so um, she's in the lane beside of them. And so she's this very daring, outgoing um, person. Like as soon as you see Kay, you just know this is a woman with life and energy and verve. She's very vibrant and vivacious. And um, I think you immediately sort of fall in love with Kay. She's just this full of energy and life. Um, but she's wild. She's very wild. And the complete opposite of Vivian in so many ways. Um, Kay works at a casino. So... We also see, I think, a class difference in this film that it's not just about two women who fall in love who are kind of opposite, but they're also in different classes and they're different ages too. Kay is only 25 while Vivian is 35, but Kay works at a casino. Kay doesn't have any kind of career. Um, I think she would be considered more working class while Vivian would be considered Part of sort of the more professional class, um they come from very different worlds, you know, Kay loves country music, and Vivian seems to prefer classical music um, but there is sort of a class difference too, where Kay is more working class and Vivian is in a different um, point in her life where she's more professional, obviously, and she's been in this marriage for twelve years, and it seems like it was a marriage that was really shallow in a lot of ways that it was more about appearances and about who you knew and it seems like for a long time Vivian has been trying to um, put on this face maybe and to pretend to be someone that she isn't and she's not an authentic person she's not open in that way she's very closed off Whereas Kay just sort of immediately comes off warm and accessible and authentic. Kay doesn't care as much. Kay doesn't care what people think of her. I mean, maybe she does inside. She certainly struggles, I think. Um. At one time, we're told that she was kicked out of college for, for doing unnatural acts. So Kay is actually open about her sexuality, people in kay's life know that she sleeps with women she doesn't try to hide that she sleeps with women um she is in the world as she is she's not trying to change herself she's not trying to hide herself she's not ashamed of who she is whereas vivian is much more closed off she's much more reserved and protected she's she's vulnerable she's raw her marriage has fallen apart. She doesn't know what's going to happen in her life. So I'm not judging Vivian. I'm just saying that these characters are very different. And the, the film does a wonderful job of setting that up. Of how they are different. Um, so yeah. I mean there's one scene where Vivian goes to Kay's cottage. Because Kay lives on like a cottage on the ranch. That Francis runs. And um, Kay likes to do pottery. She likes to sculpt and things like that. So she's very artistic. Again, that's another difference between them. Vivian is this very intellectual person. Kay is much more emotional and artistic and creative. And um, so Vivian goes there and there's a woman in Kay's bed. And Kay doesn't try to hide it. She doesn't try to like, um, you know, shut her bedroom door So I think that's actually a really liberating part of this film. That here is homosexuality. Here is a queer woman. And she's not trying to hide it from anybody. She's not acting like she has anything to be ashamed of. Um, She's open about it. She owns it. Um, Even though people judge her for it and say things... That's something else that's sort of interesting about the film is the way that it deals with homophobia. It doesn't show homophobia as something really explosive or demonstrative. You know, there's not a bunch of people with pitchforks showing up at Kay's home. And you know what I mean? She's not being put in prison for being gay. But people make comments about it. Frances cannot accept it. She hates that Kay is gay. Um, people make comments here and there. And they can be really denigrating things. And they denigrate Kay to Vivian. You know, they tell Vivian, oh, you know, she's queer. or, And I think one time Frances says something like, oh, Kay isn't up to the level of someone like you. Somebody of your caliber. That's what she says to Vivian. So even Frances, who sees Kay as almost like a daughter or a child to her, um, even she denigrates um, Kay in front of Vivian. So the homophobia in the film is much more subtle, and I would argue more believable in that way, that nobody's going and beating Kay up for being gay, but they're not treating her right they're not seeing her as human they are not supporting her they're they're saying mean things about her at times and little snide comments and so sometimes that's how homophobia manifests is that it's not always these big moments or these big violent that happens too you know people who are gay who have been beaten up they have been killed they have been you know They've gone through violence and things like that. But it can manifest in other ways too. But I do love the way that Kay is open about it. And she's not afraid to show who she is. She's very authentic. She's very true to herself. That's important to Kay. I get the sense. She loves her. She seems to love herself. To accept herself. In a way that Vivian is not able to. That Vivian is. As she starts to fall in love with Kay. She's kind of scared of it in a way. She doesn't know what to do. But of course Kay is very empathetic towards her. And doesn't judge her. But you can tell that Kay is sort of immediately drawn to Vivian. That there is this um, attraction that she feels to this woman. Um and, yeah, you can just immediately tell that, like the way that Kay looks at Vivian, she just has this sort of light in her eyes and the way that she smiles and um and they and they talk now and then and spend some time together. Kay drives Vivian to see the divorce lawyer, and we find out then that Vivian does not have children, so this will obviously make the divorce easier for her, and she wants out of the marriage. She doesn't necessarily want any money or anything. She's someone who supports herself. Um, But she's just very closed off. She's very stiff. She's very aloof. She doesn't really want to interact with Kay or with other people at the ranch. They may ask her, oh, you want to do this or that? And she's just in her room. She wants to be alone, really. Um, She's very distant and very aloof from other people and I think she's just trying to probably protect herself. And I think in her mind, well, I'm only going to be here six weeks. I don't really need to connect to anybody or get involved with anyone because her life is in New York City. Her life is not in Reno, Nevada. You know, it just wasn't. Um, But at one time, Vivian does say this, and I think it's a really interesting thing. She's talking about her marriage, She's talking about how it was really based on appearances, on knowing the right people, looking the right way. It seems like it was more a marriage of convenience in a lot of ways. I think she's talking to the divorce law lawyer when she's saying all this. And she says, quote, that she she says she wants to, quote, be free of who I've been, unquote. So there is this sense, and I think it happens as she falls in love with Kay, of, I think Vivian shedding who she was, or trying to shed who she was with her husband, that perhaps she had become someone that she didn't even recognize, that she doesn't even know who she is anymore. And so I think it's very intoxicating, obviously, when she meets someone like Kay, who knows so forcefully who she is. Kay knows exactly who she is. I have the sense that Vivian is much more lost that um, she's searching for something. And I don't even think she knows what she's searching for. Um, but I think Kay is searching too. Kay is searching for someone to love. Kay is waiting for that right person. And I get the sense that Kay's been with a lot of women. You know, She has this woman in her cottage when Vivian visits her that one time. She's very comfortable being with women. Um, but I get the sense that it's maybe a revolving door. That maybe she's been with a lot of women. and But she's looking for someone that she can love. And that she can feel a connection to. She's looking for someone really special. And she had been with a man. I think his name's Daryl. And he works at the casino. I think he's her boss at the casino. And there's this scene where he says that he loves her. And he would even overlook her being with other women. And I think Kay and Daryl were together at one time, but she, again, she has to be true to herself. Could she have dated Daryl and pretended that she's straight and that that's who she is? Absolutely. I guess she could have gone the route that Vivian went. She could get married. She could get with a man and pretend like this is what she wants and this is who she is. But Kay can't do that. Kay's not made in that way to pretend like she's something or someone that she isn't. And so she resists Daryl's advances. She does not want to be involved with him. So I want to talk about a scene that I really loved. This this might be one of my favorite scenes in the film. and It's it's really when Kay and Vivian don't really know each other that well yet. And it's late at night and they're both in the kitchen and everything goes wrong. It's, it's dark. (laughs) Kay is in there. I think she's trying to fix some food and she's got all this food in her hands and, um, they're trying not to wake up Francis. Um, and all of a sudden they just start laughing and, um, I think uh, Kay drops some of the food, and she makes all kinds of noise, even though she had been trying not to wake up Francis, and she didn't want to make all that noise. And um, they just start laughing, uh, like uproariously, like they can't stop. And Kay goes on to turn goes to turn the light on in the kitchen, but Vivian tells her not to. Vivian is in her robe, her hair might be kind of disheveled. Um, again, it goes back to this. I think Vivian is really concerned with appearances, with how things look, with how she looks. Um, it's something that I think bothers her, that if people don't see her perfectly coiffed, you know, and looking beautiful. Um, whereas Kay doesn't care. You know, Kay's just free and wild. And um, I got the sense that maybe Vivian didn't want to be seen that way by Kay. Um... Kay asks her if she's having a rough night, and Vivian acknowledges that she is having a hard time. And um, Kay tells her, you know, if you're ever up late at night again or you can't sleep, you should come by my cottage or come by my place. And um, you can tell that Vivian is very moved by this offer, that it really brings her to tears almost. The way that Kay reaches out to her... um, And something that occurred to me in this scene, like it just hit me like a lightning bolt in this moment is that this whole film so far up to this point, Vivian has been so aloof and so distant and she hasn't been particularly polite or nice. She's been kind of abrasive. (laughs) She's been unlikable, right? And as women, that's the worst thing we can be, right? Is unlikable. God forbid we not be sweet and have a smile on our face all the time. God forbid we struggle or we be messy or we not be happy-go-lucky at all times. Um, So you can tell Vivian is just in a point in her life where she's struggling. She's trying to get this divorce. She's living in Reno, Nevada for six weeks. She's having a hard time. She's having a rough night. But even with all of that, with Vivian being very distant and aloof, Kay still tries to make a connection with her. She doesn't let Vivian's rebuffs or Vivian's harshness possibly stop her. It's like she's completely undeterred. And it occurred to me that so many people don't do that that they see a person who might be walled off who might be very protective might be very distant and they just judge them they just say oh she's a bitch or oh she's stuck up um that that tends to be the response oh she thinks she's better than me or something like that they don't try to break through those walls they don't try to understand Why someone might be cold or they might be distrustful or they might be aloof. They just make that judgment, you know, and they don't go any farther. They don't go any deeper to try to understand or have empathy for someone about why they might be distant. And Kay does. Kay tries to break those walls down. Kay wants to know more about Vivian. She wants to connect with Vivian. And um, that scene in the kitchen made me, that was like a revelation to me that this film is, it's about so many things, but I think it's also about someone's persistence and how so many of us sort of wish somebody would do that, that somebody would try to understand why we are distant, why we are aloof. Or why we separate ourselves from other people. That maybe we have trouble trusting. Or maybe we don't feel comfortable. But here is a person who has compassion for you. Here is someone who has empathy for your struggle. And that is how Kay feels about Vivian, I think. Is that she sees someone who's hurting and who's struggling. And she opens her arms to Vivian. And she says, I'm here for you. And, like, how beautiful is that? Like, I'm here for you. I just thought that was really beautiful. And the scene is sort of broken up when Frances um, wakes up. And she calls to Kay. And Kay goes to her and... Frances is a really complicated woman. At times she's so loving towards Kay and she seems to care about her. But at other times she's really vicious and hurtful towards Kay. And I could never fully understand or make out that relationship. But it was really toxic, I think, in a way. The way that Frances treated Kay. And, um, but in that scene we do learn that Kay is looking for someone... That she can have a lasting relationship with. That she's looking for the right person. And that becomes really apparent. And we realize that Kay is really in love with Vivian. In this really nice scene where Kay is in the bathtub with her friend Silver. And um, I love the way women in this film interact with each other. Um they have such an immediate intimacy and connection and tenderness for each other. I mean, here are two grown women in a bathtub together, but it's completely platonic. It's it's not sexual at all. It's just two friends hanging out. And um, this is the first time that Kay really confesses the way that she feels about about Vivian and she says that when she wants to smile she just says Vivian's name and um I thought that was such a beautiful way to to describe what she feels is that every time she wants to smile she says Vivian's name and so you can tell that Kay is really starting to develop um feelings and powerful emotions for Vivian and even though these women are very different and they're opposite as I talked about earlier they're really opposites in every possible way from their careers you know their classes um they even down to their clothes they're very different you know, Vivian wears dress suits and skirts and she's very prim, I think and proper in some of her fashion, while Kay wears jeans and cut off shorts and cowboy boots and loose fitting shirts. And um so they're so different, but I think Kay really brings Vivian out of herself and I think she sort of changes Vivian over the course of the film and she even persuades vivian at one point to buy more sort of country western sort of clothing and there is a scene in the film where they're out shopping for clothes and um vivian tries on sort of a country western shirt and she has pants on and um i just i love that aspect of the film that These characters are really changing. But Vivian in particular is changing. And I obviously don't think that she expected that. She was just going to go to Reno. Get this divorce in six weeks. And then I think she was going to go back to her life at Columbia University. And that was just going to be the end of it. And I don't think she thought there were any other possibilities for her life. And when Kay comes into her life... Those new possibilities are opened up to her. And that's really what Kay, I think, represents. So Kay's friend Silver is getting married. And she has this engagement party. And Vivian sort of reluctantly goes to it. At first she wasn't going to go. But then she ends up going. And after, or really during the engagement party, Kay and Vivian leave together. And they go by themselves to, um, to a place in the desert. I think, I think I was reading, they said Tahoe possibly or or somewhere like that. I wasn't sure where exactly they were, but it's like a lake and there's these like mountains and sort of a desert area. It's really beautiful. And, um, Vivian is kind of (laughs) drunk and they stay there overnight. I guess they sleep in the vehicle or something like that and the next morning they're just sort of walking around um Kay talks about you know her feelings for women that she prefers women and Vivian tells her that she's not into that though she does have feelings for Kay so Vivian admits that she does care about Kay but she tries to you know um act like oh but I'm not into that you know and um it starts to rain and Vivian goes and gets in the car and this is an incredibly romantic moment and a romantic scene in the film it's really beautiful um Vivian gets in the car and Kay follows her and she comes up to the window and has her roll down the window and she leans into the car and she and Vivian kiss they're both covered with rain, obviously, and um, it's very romantic, but Vivian does pull away from it, and you can tell that she's she's not fully comfortable with what's happening or not comfortable with what she's feeling, and she wants to go back to the ranch. And um, I think Vivian is a woman in turmoil in a lot of ways that... She, maybe her whole life, she had been denying these feelings, denying these emotions. That, um, and maybe for the first time, Kay is making her confront them or making her realize that maybe she does have these feelings. And, um, I'm not sure Vivian knows how to handle it really. She hasn't come to that place where she can admit it, I think. They go back to the ranch, and Frances is livid. She thinks that they've been out together, that I guess Vivian has seduced Kay, or or something like that, but she definitely thinks that something has happened between the two of them, and she's livid about it. Um she thinks that they've slept together probably um and she says these strange things she really looks down on them says that at least she is normal so again her attacking Kay and Kay's sexuality and she has Vivian's bags packed she wants Vivian to leave the ranch and Vivian does she goes to a hotel and then there's this confrontation between Francis and Kay and Kay says that she's going to move out. Um, She tells Francis that Francis wants things without loving them. I thought that was a really powerful line. Um, Francis seems to be really possessive of Kay. That even though she judges Kay in her lifestyle. She is trying to hold on to Kay. She doesn't want to let Kay go. She doesn't want to share Kay with other people. Um... She's very possessive, but then she seems to be really ashamed of Kay at the same time. So it's this really complicated relationship that I myself could not fully understand. Like, if you're so ashamed of Kay, then why do you care? You know, I I didn't fully understand it at times. And so Vivian goes to the hotel. And Kay shows up. Um. and they obviously need to talk about what's happened. The kiss in the rain has really changed things between them, and I don't think that Vivian quite knows what to do next. <laughs> she obviously was not expecting this to happen. And Vivian talks about how she likes order. Um, She wants things to be... I guess predictable, and she doesn't like chaos. It doesn't seem like she's a she's someone very obsessed with order, and I think that can't, comes off in her personality. You know, that she's this very organized, um, put together kind of person. I'm not finding the right word for it, but um, and Kay is really the opposite of order. And I got to thinking more about this. K is disorder. And if you think about it, really desire and attraction are disorder. They are um, a form of disorder because they're chaotic. Desire really disrupts our lives and it can leave us reeling. It can make us come undone because you're exposed to another person. You are revealed. You are um, naked and vulnerable to another person through desire, through trying to open yourself up to love and to connection with another person. Um, It can make us come undone. It can bring chaos and disruption into our lives. And so I think Vivian is struggling with that. She's struggling with the way that her desire for Kay is really disrupting her life. It's changing her life in so many ways. And so Vivian just, I don't think she knows how to handle it. And of course, Kay is open to it. (laughs) Kay doesn't care she's going to go after what she wants. Kay is not reserved. Kay is not shy about anything. And so Kay gets into Vivian's bed and she's naked and Vivian walks in and there's Kay naked in her bed. Um, and there's this push and pull really between the two of them. And it's been there throughout the film, but it's in this scene too. Vivian says that she wants Kay to leave. But Kay says that, that that's not really what Vivian wants. You know, Vivian is really denying what she feels. Um, and so Carolyn, who I mentioned earlier, Carolyn Pettit, she, I think, gives a really brilliant commentary about this scene. Because I think in some ways people could see it as Kay maybe bullying Vivian or forcing Vivian into something that Vivian doesn't really want. There is, I guess, an interpretation for the scene in that, for the scene in that way. Um, But I didn't see it that way. And Carolyn obviously didn't see it that way either. And she, I think, puts it in a really great way and is also talking about something even deeper. And so she writes, quote, to be hounded and pestered by the wrong person is awful. It's miserable. It's unacceptable. But some of us have learned to be so afraid, to have so little confidence, and so much fear and doubt, that we may need the right person to nudge us a bit, to help us overcome our deep insecurities. This requires that the other person operate from a place of empathy, that they not just be concerned about fulfilling their own wants or needs, but that they genuinely want to help the other person too, unquote. And I love that. And and I think it connects to what I said earlier about that scene um, where I realized that, that Kay was opening herself to Vivian that she was welcoming Vivian that even though Vivian was not reciprocating even though Vivian was sort of walling herself off Kay was trying to break through those walls and in this scene I think that's what Kay is trying to do she's trying to break through those walls that Vivian has created she's trying to say you know that you want this you've kissed me right Vivian throughout the film has indicated that she is attracted to Kay. Kay's not forcing Vivian to do anything. She is having trouble accepting how she feels about Kay. And of course, Kay is being very gentle with her and accepting, but she's also forcing her to confront these feelings, right? That's what's happening, She's saying that this is what you want. You want to be with me. Um, and so eventually Vivian does give in to that, and she surrender. I would say the word is surrender, that she surrenders to Kay, that she finally accepts what she feels. Um, and so, yeah. And there's, yeah, I would say that's it. Now I want to talk about the love scene. This is an important scene. It's really what the film is building towards. And, um, as Donna Deitch, excuse me, um, as Donna Deitch said, I think Donna Deitch said it, or somebody said it in one of the things that I watched, um, Maybe it was one of the actresses or, but they said that the film would not be the same without the love scene. And the actresses knew ahead of time that they would have to do this love scene, that there would be nudity and things like that. Patricia Charbonneau, who plays Kay, she struggled a little bit with the love scene because, as I said before, she found out she was pregnant shortly before filming began and so she felt I think more like she described it like she felt maybe more protective of her body because she was pregnant now Um, but it's it's an intimate scene and but it was filmed so respectfully from what I heard it was just Donna and maybe two other people who were present when they did the scene I think they shot it over maybe the course of one day. They did shoot it at the end, really. It was one of the last scenes that they shot. Um, And when I was watching this scene, I just thought, what occurred to me as I watched it was the absence of the male gaze. That This is a love scene between two women that really is not about using it as titillation it's not about exploiting it or turning it into pornography it is about the deep emotional and physical connection between Kay and Vivian and Helen Shaver and Patricia Charbonneau do a beautiful job in the scene We don't see a lot. It's certainly not like the love scene, for instance, in Blue is the Warmest Color, which I talked about in my review. I think most people find that particular scene in the film kind of laughable because it's so over the top. It's so graphic. It's it's not really, I think, a believable love scene between two women and it feels robotic and sort of automatic in, in a certain way. Sort of like the actresses were going through the motions. Um, and the actresses talked about how they felt on set about that love scene. That they did not enjoy shooting it. That they felt exploited. <clears throat> they felt like it was not handled properly. That it felt porn like they were, I guess, in a porn film. Or I think Leia Seydoux said she felt like a prostitute. So... Desert Hearts is the complete opposite of that. Where the actresses talk about how professional and tender Donna Deitch was. And when we talk about more women being in the film industry. And obviously we talk more about there being women directors. But I would argue we need more women on set too. We need women um, cinematographers. Women um, writers. Screenwriters. Women at every level of the film industry. We need more women on set because I think when you have the presence of women who are in positions of power who say there is a sex scene or a love scene where something is uncomfortable or one of the actresses feel uncomfortable. Well if you have a woman there in a position of power who can actually affect things then maybe that actress can speak up and say something. And maybe the set is safer for women and for all people and for children. Um, We desperately need that, I think. So this filming of this love scene, because there was a woman director there who was in control and who was making the decisions. It was a much more tender, gentle positive experience for the actresses but they knew they had to do this scene that the film wouldn't be the same without it this was not an exploitative scene this is partly what the film is building to is Vivian's surrender to Kay of their surrender to each other of their sharing their bodies with each other and their souls really they're bearing their souls to each other and they're having this very sensual intimate sexual connection. And um I love the way it starts. I love that at first they're just looking at each other and that Kay touches Vivian's face and then they start to just kiss. So there's a a very there's a tenderness about the scene and Vivian says that she's never felt this way before. And then she just sort of falls into Kay's arms and there is this surrender that happens where she finally lets herself feel this and to explore it and to have that experience and Kay just sort of holds her for a little bit and I loved that I and I've talked about this in my other films um in my my other episodes about queer films even blue is the warmest color everybody talked about the sex the sex the sex in that film the sex scene um, or the multiple sex scenes. And for me, what moved me about that film, as problematic as that film is in terms of how it was made and stuff. Um, what still moved me was <clears throat> the intimacy. the scene Not the scenes where the two girls are having graphic pornographic sex. It's where they're just holding each other or kissing each other or just reveling in each other's bodies. It's the way I also felt with Call Me By Your Name. That I know there is criticisms that the sex scenes were not more graphic. That we didn't really see a whole lot. Um, and I absolutely respect that critique. And it's important. I mean, for me, when we're talking about sex in films, it's t- to me, it's not about the graphic nature of it. It's more about the desire that the characters have for each other. And sometimes you may not see much. I mean with the desert heart scene, we don't see much of their bodies at all. We only see sort of the top. We see their breasts and that's it. We don't see their genitalia or their butts or anything like that. We don't see that. Um, so it's very subtle, I think in that way, it's not that graphic really um, compared to maybe some other scenes that I've, I've seen in films. Um, but, um, what matters to me more is the way the characters express their desire for each other and their hunger for each other, and I think that's very erotic and maybe the way that they sort of drink one another's bodies in you know that can be just as powerful as like the emotional dimension to the scenes, and I think if that emotional part is there, and that desire is there, and you feel that desire. That is what is, I think, beautiful about those scenes. I don't need to see everything. You know, you don't need to go through every sexual action or anything like that. You can suggest that um, those things, you know, um, what it's more about for me, especially for Desert Hearts, is the way Vivian is allowing herself to finally engage with this. I said earlier that Vivian is someone who's very intellectual. She's very in her head. She's an English professor at Columbia University. Throughout the film, her body is very stiff and erect, and she has perfect posture, and um, she's sort of wooden in a way, you know, and um, She is very covered up, too. She does not show cleavage. She has long skirts on. I mean, maybe some of the the dresses are a little form-fitting, you know, but she's not someone who's showing her body, whereas Kay, throughout the film, her blouses are open. Sometimes she doesn't have pants on. Like, when they're doing that scene in the kitchen where um, all that happens, um, Kay doesn't even have pants on during that scene. Kay is very open about her body. And Vivian has always been very different. She's modest. You know, she covers her body and things like that. And um, so in this scene, for her to take her robe off, because she has a robe on when Kay first gets there, it's a big deal for Vivian. I think after 12 years of marriage, it would be a big deal for her to expose herself to anybody. Even if it was a man. But it being a woman is earth shattering I think for her. This is transformative. To open herself up to a woman. To have sex with a woman. But even if she was with a man. I think it would be a big deal for her to expose herself. To be naked. To do this when she's only been with one man for 12 years. And that relationship has ended. And um. So she's vulnerable and she's raw. And um, I think because she's vulnerable and raw, she has built up an even bigger defense and even bigger walls because she's trying to protect herself. And finally, she lets someone in. You know, Kay has finally, I think, broken through all of those walls, all of those defenses, and has found the woman inside You know, who Vivian is and what she wants and desires. And that's what this scene is about. Yes, it's about sex. You know, it's about desire. It's about pleasure. You know, this is a scene of two women pleasuring each other. You know, and that's liberating and that's empowering. And I would imagine if you were a lesbian in the 1980s, this would be a very empowering scene to see two women together like this um, in a very tender, romantic, um, erotic scene, um, I would imagine that would be very affirming for you, but there's an emotional dimension to the scene too, which is Vivian finally opening up to Kay, letting Kay in, um, admitting her desire for Kay and actually acting on it and participating in, in this, you know, in this act, um, you can tell that she's still scared and unsure though. Even after the love scene. Um, what else? I'm looking at my notes. Oh yeah. I wanted to talk a bit more about Donna Deach. As I said, this is a film about women by a woman. And it is so apparent. And that's what makes it so beautiful. I think... And one of the things I watched, maybe it was one of the actresses who said it, but the film would not be the same if it was directed by a man. It would not be the same. Um, We needed a woman directing this story. She respects the love between these two women. She respects these two women. And the love scene shows that and her respectfulness of the actresses and of the characters Um, you see kissing, you do see their breasts, but the desire is very intense and it's palpable. And there is a very strong sense that this is like an awakening for Vivian, that this is the first time she's experienced this before. There's a very strong sense of that of like, she was probably in a marriage for 12 years where the sex was terrible. Um, where, I mean, this is a huge, huge problem in terms of heterosexual relationships between men and women, where women do not feel empowered to ask for pleasure. That it's always a one-way street. That the man gets off. The man has the orgasm. And then women don't. Women just sort of defer their desire. They just sort of put it away, I guess and they don't make any demands. They don't say, well, what about me? You know, they don't feel like they can say that, or they don't feel like men understand how to pleasure them, or how to bring them to an orgasm. And so this is something that Peggy Ornstein did a TED talk about, and she does a lot of research with teenage girls and women and she said that this is a big problem that girls don't know how to ask for pleasure when they are with men and that their pleasure is not centered and is not um seen as important and so I think it's really powerful and um and important in this scene that this is about two women taking pleasure in each other's bodies and that both of them it is giving it is equal it is a partnership here you know that their pleasure each of their pleasure matters you know that it's not just one of them or the other right it's equal and it's balanced and um i'm just looking at my notes yeah what I lost my train of thought for a moment yeah what I was trying to say is that she was probably in a relationship for 12 years where her pleasure was not centered this is this was 1959 and I'm talking in 2018 women still when they are in heterosexual relationships do not feel like their pleasure matters or their climax matters and that makes me sad I just think that's heartbreaking really I really do. I think it's terrible. So she's probably in this marriage where he doesn't give a damn what she feels when it comes to sex. That it's probably all about him and his desire. And um, and who knows if her entire life she'd ever had any kind of sexual experience like this where she felt satisfied, where she felt pleasure. Um, I mean, there are women that can go very a very long time in their lives before they have that. So to be with Kay, it seems to me, is much more of an awakening for her. And I would imagine um a really powerful experience of pleasure and desire and um satisfaction and and um it feels like an awakening to me. You know, it just feels like she just seems different afterwards. But she is still scared and unsure. And she feels very exposed. And this is another way where the film subtly looks at homophobia. And um, her and Kay go to a bar later on. um, And Kay tries to touch her hand in public. And you can tell that Vivian's uncomfortable with it. And these men buy them a drink. And so Vivian wants to leave. She is still... Very, I think, scared about being seen publicly as a lesbian. And she is still struggling with that. And so her and Kay sort of clash over that. Um, You know, they do tell each other that they love each other when they're at that bar. Um, They both admit it to each other. And that's a really beautiful thing for them to say that they're in love. Um, But Vivian has never had this before. Kay has experience with women. She has been with women. She's maybe more used to this life and, and being seen as queer. Whereas Vivian is not. She's not used to it. And, um, but even though Kay has been with more women, she hasn't felt this for another woman before. She, she thinks that Vivian is the one. I think she knows that Vivian is the one. And, um, So both of them, I think, are experiencing things that they haven't experienced before. It's not just Vivian, I think, going through something. It's Kay going through something, too. Because for so long, she's been looking for the right person. For a special person that she can really love and give her heart to. Um, The way she describes it is that Vivian reached reached in and put a string of lights around her heart. Oh, God, I love that. (laughs) Almost brings me to tears, you know. Um, And there's this really amazing scene after they've left the bar. Because Vivian didn't feel comfortable there. And she felt exposed. And, um, And Kay says that Vivian is really only visiting the way that she lives every day. That I guess Vivian can leave it. Kay can't. You know, this is, Kay has decided to be authentic and to be true to herself and to live the way that she wants to live, which is as a lesbian, is as a woman that loves other women. And she lives that every day. She lives the homophobia that comes with it. Vivian is only getting a taste of it. You know, Vivian can leave it at any time. Um... And of course, Vivian counters that Kay is too sure of herself, that she has no fears or doubts. And, you know, I would argue that that is not necessarily a great thing to act like you have no fears and doubts, that it's okay that Vivian is struggling with it. It doesn't make Vivian a bad person, that she's having trouble with the fact that she's gay or that she is bisexual. I'm not sure if she still has feelings for men or not. It's okay if somebody struggles with that. Just like I don't think we should shame people if they are in the closet. I mean, I don't know if I even like that phrase, really. Um, People who are not out. You know, who are not... If you hear my dog, I apologize. (laughs) Um, I, I don't think we need to shame people who are not ready to come out or... You get what I'm saying? Because you don't know the atmosphere, the environment that that person might live in. You don't know how their family is. I don't think there should be a judgment of people who are not able to publicly say that they are gay. I mean, that's just my opinion. And other people may disagree with it. But I think we need to have a little bit of empathy that we all have different experiences, that we're not all living in a city a liberal progressive city environment. I come from the country. I live in a rural area in the south where there's still a lot of homophobia and anti-gay sentiment. Just like there's anti-immigrant sentiment and all kinds of things here. It's not a perfect place. It's also not as one-dimensional as it tends to get portrayed You know, this is is a complex area, just like every other region of the country is complex. You can't generalize and you should not stereotype. I get really frustrated with that. Even though I am from the South, I am from a really rural area. I still don't like stereotypes and dehumanization of any group, of any group in this country. Um, Every place is complex. It really is. But I don't think that we need to have judgment for people that might not be able to come out. And might not be able to be public about their sexuality. It depends on a lot of different circumstances. So Vivian is very human in that she has fears. And she has doubts. And she's struggling with them. Not all of us can be Kay. Not all of us can be confident about ourselves and and all of that. Of course that could be like a little bit of a performance that Kay's putting on too. Or she feels like she has to be that way. I don't know. But um but Kay says that she doesn't want to let the world change her. You know, she's open and confident about her sexuality. She doesn't seem to care what people think, but that doesn't mean that it's easy for her. Just because she has that smile on her face her face and she's very confident and she's um she owns her sexuality and owns who she is. That doesn't mean that she doesn't have to deal with, you know, terrible homophobia at times, and and um, a sense of feeling othered, and a, feel, a feeling of marginalization that she has to go through. So they both have their own struggles, and I think what matters is that empathy, you know, that I think we should have empathy for Vivian, and what she's going through, struggling with her feelings, and with the fears that she has about being publicly queer. Because in 1959, um, that could be a dangerous thing. That could be a very difficult thing. And not everybody can be like Kay, you know. Kay's just, she's a different kind of person and that she can take that. And she's strong and resilient. And not all of us are like that not all people are like that when it comes to their sexuality or anything about themselves not everybody's confident and and can be as true to themselves the way that Kay is and um I mean Kay's still an exceptional person and I love her as a character but not everybody's like that and I think Vivian's struggle is more relatable <laughs> and it's more real and it's more like human that yeah, you would struggle with this, that you're 35 years old, and maybe you never had this experience, or you never realized that this was part of you, or that this is how you felt about women, you know? Of course, they make up after they have this confrontation, but I thought it was an important scene to to illustrate maybe the different sides of it, you know, for people in the queer community, that not everybody is comfortable being open about it, and you have to give people time, you know, maybe they will get there eventually, but they may not get there at the same speed that you have, and I think that's important too So Silver does get married, and um at the at the wedding, Kay and Francis come back together and they seem to reach some kind of understanding and there is sort of a a closure there between the two of them. Frances really just cannot accept Kay's sexuality, but she does care about her. And and we know that. We know Frances cares. She just she has a really weird way of showing it. And I think in that relationship between Kay and Frances, I think it could mirror a lot of relationships that queer people have with their family that sometimes the family may still love them but not fully accept them and it's very complicated and I think that's why some people are scared to come out is because they fear that their mother their grandmother their father their siblings could treat them differently that this switch could be cut off and they would not receive that unconditional love um that they need and they won't. And, um, it's hard. It's really, it's a difficult thing. And I think that Desert Hearts, in that relationship between Kay and Frances, even though Frances is not her mother, but Frances is a kind of mother figure, I would argue, a kind of family, um, that there's just, It's really complicated and it's sad there's it's sad in a way that Francis can't accept it That, that it's such a big deal that it's like why does it matter why does it matter I'll never understand but to Francis it matters but there does seem to be a closure there so the ending is really interesting, and the ending is incredibly ambiguous. Um, Vivian's divorce is finalized, so she's ready to head home to New York City, and she tells Kay to go with her, but Kay's not ready to do that, and they're at the train station, which I love that the film ended where it had began, or begun, I don't know if I said the right word there, Um it started with Vivian coming on the train six weeks earlier. Getting off the train alone. And now it ends with Vivian returning to the train six weeks later. And yet she's not alone. I mean that is that is the crux of it for me. Is It's hard to live in this world. And it's hard to be alive at times. Because one's loneliness can be so terrible and awful I mean I'm someone that struggles with loneliness and I think one of Vivian's biggest fears when she first arrived in Reno was that she would be alone forever that her marriage was ending she was 35 years old who's going to want to marry a 35 year old divorcee right um and she said that at one time that she feared being alone forever um, and I think all of us fear that. We fear lonely fear being alone. It's so hard to connect to people. And Vivian is a complicated woman. And she had a lot of defenses up and a lot of walls, and she was protecting her heart that had been broken. And here comes Kay, here comes this person that opens up all these possibilities. And one of those possibilities is that Vivian won't be alone. That she will now have someone. Someone who loves her. Someone who cares about her. Who sees her for who she is and cares about her. Um, at one time Vivian says, uh, this is at the end, she's looking at Cain, she says, you deserve, um, what is it? You deserve to live somewhere with or near someone who sees how wonderful you are for exactly who you are. I mean, she's looking right at Kay and telling her that. And I think this film is telling women, not just queer women, but especially queer women, you deserve love. And maybe in a way it's saying we all deserve love through this story. But in particular, it's telling queer women, lesbian women, you deserve to be loved. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing for you to be ashamed of. You deserve love just like everybody else does. (coughs) We all deserve that. We all deserve unconditional love, to be loved for who we are. And I just thought it was really beautiful um, that she said that. And Carolyn Pettit, I'll come back to her post, um, she, screenshotted, she did screenshots of that scene. Um, and it's so beautiful. And she writes about it at the end of her piece, her exquisite piece on Desert Hearts. And she says, quote, for exactly who you are, that's the really important part. Kay lives in a world that doesn't see her, not really, and that hates her when it does. To a certain extent, so do I. This 1986 film about a lesbian relationship in Reno in 1959 captures the dream of a real connection, of being seen, accepted, loved by someone you really want to see, accept, and love someone who counts, and it recognizes that some of us have reasons to run, to doubt, to fear, and that we may need someone, the right person, to fight for us someday, I think all of us want that connection. All of us are living our lives in search of true, meaningful connection and unconditional love, and not all of us get it. Not all of us can have it, or we may search for it and never find it. But this film gives us a story where they do find it. That here is Vivian arriving alone, and here she is leaving with this wonderful woman with her, and the possibilities that are opened up for them. Neither of them are committing suicide. Neither of them are getting trapped in heterosexual marriages. Neither of them uh, come to any kind of tragic end. That's why the film was so radical and revolutionary and groundbreaking. Is that it was about a positive romantic love story between two women. With a happy ending and also an ambiguous ending. Um, Because Vivian steps up on that train and she reaches her hand out to Kay. And she asks her to get on with her. And, you know, she says at the, at the least she'd like to have 40 more minutes with Kay. that Kay could get on um, only until the next stop if she wants. And in that moment, both of them have to make a choice. But Kay especially. Now the ball is in Kay's court. This is really fascinating to me. Because it's a bit of a reversal. Because the whole time... You know, Kay's been the one pursuing Vivian, and Vivian's been the one who's unsure and insecure and and um, sort of holding back. And now it's Vivian who's reaching out, who's being assertive, who's making possibly the first move here. She's the one saying, "Let's be together. Come with me." She is offering this to Kay and Kay's the one that has to decide what she wants to do Vivian is open to it now that's the difference is that before Vivian was terrified Vivian was closed off she had all these walls around her and now they're gone and she is herself she is herself and she's reaching out her hand to Kay And she's offering a new life. She's offering love. She's offering connection. She's offering let's be together. Let's do this. Let's be daring. Let's be crazy. Let's be together. And Kay gets on. We don't know if she got off at the next stop. Or if she kept going to New York City. Or... If Vivian decided to move down to Reno and the two of them got together, it's ambiguous and it's open-ended and you can make up your own ideas. I mean, personally, what I would love to think of is maybe Vivian leaving Columbia University and maybe going down and living in Nevada. I don't know if they live in Reno, but I don't know if I can imagine Kay in New York City, but maybe it could work. Um, I don't know. I guess because it's Desert Hearts, for me, I could imagine them having a life in the desert together, like some kind of bungalow in the desert where they live out their lives together. Um, I just love that setting. I love the landscape of the desert in this film, the big sky and the open plains and it's just gorgeous the way the film captured it, and so we get this very open-ended um, fin- ending of the film that we don't know what happens between the two of them, but nothing violent or tragic happens to them, and they are and they fall in love, and it is I would say a happy ending, even though we don't know exactly what happens. This is just a beautiful romantic film. No tragedy or terrible suffering. No torment, really. Although Vivian does struggle. And it's really about these two women searching for something and finding what they're searching for in each other. And how rare that is, really, to make those connections with people. I think about it a lot in my life. (sighs) I love films like this, but they really represent something I've never had or ever felt before. I feel so closed off from people and so disconnected and separate from people, and I don't know how to change it. I've reached out to people my whole life, I've tried so hard to make connections and people just keep forgetting me, and they just keep rejecting me, and I think I've gotten to a point in my life where I can't do it anymore, that I've just built up all these walls, and closed myself off even more from the world, and isolated myself, um, because it just hurts too much to constantly be rejected and to, and to try and try and try and you just can't connect. You can't do it. I just wonder what's wrong with me, you know? Am I not worth loving? Maybe I'm not lovable, you know? I don't know. it's, it's something I've struggled with a long time. I've always struggled to make friends and to connect with people always. Um, not for lack of trying. I guess there's just something about me that people don't like. Not sure I can change it at this point, really. I am who I am, but, um, that's what I love about a film like this is even if I can't have it, even if I can't have some great connection with someone else, um I get to live vicariously through Kay and Vivian or through the other love stories that I watch, you know. Um it's just it's a beautiful story, you know, and um it's about two women who really connect with each other and fall in love and it's rare I think people also love love stories like this because they don't happen to everybody and I guess to some people they do happen but to for a lot of us we're just always searching for love or searching for connection and here are two characters who find it who finally make contact with it. And, um, and that's really beautiful. And that's why I love this film. Is I love that Vivian and Kay find each other. That they recognize each other. That they believe in the love that they have for each other. And I like to think that they do get together. I don't want to think about them not being together. They have to be together. Um, They take a chance. And I think Kay getting on that train is her taking a chance, just like Vivian offering. Um, Kay, you know, to go with her to New York City is taking a big chance and taking a big risk. But when you find that kind of love and you find that kind of connection, you should not let it go. And that's not, and that's, not what they're doing they're not letting it go um they're holding on for dear life to what they have found because they know how rare and exceptional it is vivian has to know she just went she just wasted 12 years of her life with someone that she didn't love and so i think maybe she finally realized this is real and i have to hold on to this And I just love that in that scene, she is the active one. She is the assertive one and says, come to New York with me. Come to New York City. Let's have a life together. And, um, I love that. I really enjoyed this film. I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I talked about it. Um, what an extraordinary debut feature film, um, It's just exceptional a film about women by a woman um who did just an extraordinary job bringing this story and fought for years to do it you know and um got the money and um yeah she did it all and we are much better for it um yeah. So I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Keep watching great films. Bye for now.